I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guests, the creative team of Food Rocks, and they are going to introduce themselves to you. Hi, my name is George Wilkins, and I was the musical director on Food Rocks way back when. Hi, this is Ken, and I was the lighting designer for Food Rocks. Hi, this is Valerie Johnson-Rudrow, and I worked uh, to help with the, as a media producer, my job on Food Rocks was more to line up the potential talent, get the songs published, you know, the information on publishing done, and, and convince the celebrity singers to be involved in our project. And I'm Jim Steinmeier, and I was the writer on Food Rocks. I'm so glad we can have you guys on the show. Um, this is, I've told all of you, but this is one of my personal favorites when I was a kid. I just adored the show. Came out in 1994 and I'd seen it a few years later. And um, maybe some people might not remember Food Rocks if you had not been there since, you know, 2004, 2005, um, since it was replaced by Soren in um, Epcot at the Land Pavilion. So um, what, how would you all describe what Food Rocks is for somebody who had never gotten to experience it? I never saw the show. <laughs> I only recorded it. And uh, but I never got to. I've seen artwork on it and everything, but never never got to see it. So my my only opinion would be uh, from the audio angle. And I thought it was uh, amazing. It was uh, a it, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to to produce and to do. And it was part of Epcot renewals. Epcot Epcot had been open ten years at that time. And the contracts came up, and the contracts were being swapped from one corporation to the other. And so that involved changing shows. So there was a show that was there called Kitchen Cabaret. And Kitchen Cabaret, Cabaret was an animated show of kind of 30s and 40s cabaret-style songs about food and nutrition. And two things that happened in that 10 years, uh, well, and a bunch of things that happened, one of which is we had a new sponsor. It went from uh, a craft to Nestle. The other thing that happened is that the messages about food and nutrition had changed quite a bit in those 10 years about the food pyramid and what we were supposed to be eating. And then we wanted to dust off Kitchen Cabaret and Rolly Crump was the executive producer of, of the Epcot renewal show, uh, that pavilion for Nestle. And Rolly and I went down and looked at it and, uh, Kitchen Cabaret had been running 10 years, but we kind of walked out saying, um, and Rolly was, was so smart and so practical about everything he did. And we said, you know, it's really a good show. It's just that it's a cabaret show and no one in this audience, you know, has sat through a 40 show, including us, you know. So we said, let's just modernize the show. Let's get new characters. Let's do rock music. Let's do a rock concert. And, and, you know, bring it all up to speed with new messages and new songs and a new cast. And so that's what it was. It was a, it was a rock concert about good nutrition. And it was all parody songs. And in some cases, it was the, it was the real artists doing their one-off songs. It, uh, Jim, I did the original uh, Kitchen Cabaret. Right. With, with Buddy Baker and Exitencio and a few other people. And they were they were really amazing animated characters because they yeah. were 
they were they were really fantastic cartoonish characters because they were food. And in fact, we kept a couple of the characters. I the um, couple of them were redone. I know the milk carton ended up in both shows. Right, we right. Redressed it, and then there were a couple others that we reskinned. You know, in other words, we used some of the mechanics for them. Um, but they were really fantastic and fun and cartoonish. And that was part of the fun of it. It was inventing these characters. And the original cabaret was a, was a, was a really good example of, of the show because it had really efficient messages. The songs were fun. It was just about like kind of bringing, bringing that style of song up to date now uh, with a rock concert. And I don't mean to sound silly here, but I didn't realize that it was more so paying tribute to Live Aid from 1985 with the thought of the, the backing. The story was about good nutrition. So I didn't realize that until I did a little bit more digging. I don't know why I never put the two together. Where did that idea come from? Like, who who thought of that? Because it's so clever. I love it. I, I don't know. I don't actually, I have to be honest with you, I don't remember ever talking about Live Aid. But you have to understand that what that what that means is exactly what you're saying. In the early 90s when we were working on this, it meant that, you know, all of that was in the zeitgeist. The idea of bringing different stars together for a benefit concert, for a, for a big story, that was all something we'd just been through. So um, I don't know that. I don't know that it was pointed particularly at Live Aid, but I think that was an idea that was that we were all conscious of at the time. You know, all, from a, from a lighting design perspective, it's the first time that we had ever actually done you done a, a rock concert inside you know a, a Disney park. Um, it the show came up just at the time that automated fixtures were going to be available to for um, corporations and companies to own. Up until this time. All automated fixtures were were proprietary and owned by the the folks that manufactured them. And just as Food Rocks came uh, was was coming of age, um, a, a company worked out um, a a deal where Disney could essentially buy the fixtures uh, through a long term lease. So we had fixtures available to us that were had never been available before, which uh, which played perfectly into the rock concert um, perspective. Um, we saw, I should also give credit. There were two other members of the team who were critical to the to the success of the rock concert vibe. First is uh, Abby Rosen Holmes, who was my partner on the show, who has a crazy credentials as a line designer for its huge, huge, um, high power talent. Um, she was working with me at Imagineering, and Ira Lickman, who worked for R and D. At the same time, we were creating this show. We were also creating a brand new proprietary Disney uh, uh, lighting console. So that was all being developed at the same time. So Abby and I would be programming the show, and we get to a point where we either crashed the software or needed new features. We'd call Ira. He'd come in. We'd go to dinner. He'd write more code. We'd come back. We'd program some more. And we really just leapfrog between development and programming time and really worked our way through it. Um, one of the other pieces we had specified, we specified uh, two kinds of lights. There was a wash light that looked you know, kind of like a giant coffee can that waved around and changed color. And then we had a fixture that was a spotlight, the fixture that did all the patterns and stuff in the show. And it turns out at the time of the show, the spotlight version was not uh, had not yet become available. So the company who we uh, leased the lights from went back into their archives and found 
the very first version of a moving light they ever made. And these are the moving lights that were first built for Genesis uh, Rock Tour, where moving lights were first ever used in a show. So we programmed the show on this first generation of light, waiting for the, uh, the state-of-the-art version to become available. So we really programmed the show twice, first with this great uh, original hardware from the 80s, and then when the other fixture became available, we came back in and uh, installed the new fixtures and cleaned up the programming. But uh, it was great to be using, you know, Genesis original light fixtures in Food Rocks for us in Epcot. It truly was amazing. And one of the great things, if you remember the start of the show, all the lights around the drapery were all waving in the air and changing all kinds of crazy colors. It was a perfect way to start the rock concert. But what happened was we were programming the show and we crashed the console. And when the console crashed, that's what the console started doing with those lights. And we're like, hey, wait, that's the perfect way to start the show. So we, <laughs> we let it run for a little while so we could remember what it, what it did. And then we went off to dinner, Ira fixed it, we came back and then programmed all that crazy waving and color changing at the start of the show, but only a happy accident because we were busy, we were busy crashing, uh, crashing the console. Um, we also, because it was food-based, were able to do great, um, great gobos, um, great custom gobos. And gobos are the patterns that go in the spotlights that, that make the patterns on, on the stage. You'll remember there was a, a, a spoon and a fork pattern. There was a, uh, what one we loved most was an orange. Um, so we were sitting in our office one day, oh, we need, we need a, a fruit gobo. So Abby got up. There was an orange slice uh, in her in her uh, to go lunch from uh, from the big D of Imagineering. We slapped it on the Xerox machine. Xerox literally uh, had a slice of orange, um, and, <laughs> and then scanned that and sent that off. So that orange gobo that you see is literally a photocopy of an orange that was in our lunch one day. Um, so we had a lot of fun uh, working on this show as well. I mean, one of the great things about it was how as Ken said, how like true to the form it was, how the music was really true to those songs, how the the lighting design was really true to a rock concert. I mean, there was a little parody in all of it because it was, what, a 25-foot stage? You know, it was the tiniest rock concert you ever saw. And, of course, it was also all these cartoon characters. But, you know, the lighting effects were every bit what you would have seen in a concert at that time. Um, the the way that they were programmed, the way they swept across the stage, the way they introduced each song, you know, we they drew on our team drew on all of that, and they had had experience with all of that. And of course, George had done every every kind of music on earth by then. So um, I remember feeling incredibly guilty partway through this process because we had to do so many test songs to get artists to sign up. We probably did eight or 10 songs for each one that was used to do, to, to, to demonstrate to the artist what it would sound like. And I remember early on George being in some meeting or we were recording something and I felt terribly guilty that we were putting George through this. Uh, and finally he, he, we were in some conversation. He said, you know, this is a lot of fun because we get to actually go through and figure out what all these riffs are in this fame, in these famous songs. And I'm having a blast doing this. And I thought, well, thank heavens, you know, this is actually fun for him because otherwise this would be just a drag. 
you know, having to having to recreate all these songs. Well, I remember uh, when we did this Pointer Sisters, and I got Marty McCall to put together uh, four of the greatest chicks in town to to do it. <laughs> and I remember uh, Eisner saying, "Well, what the hell do we need the Pointer Sisters for? This is great." <laughs> and the Pointer Sisters came in and just tore it up. I mean, you know, as great as the demo was, they made it twice as good. They were amazing. Clever things about the show was then uh, if you looked at the writing and, you know, instead of the Beach Boys, it's the Peach Boys. It's the Refrigerator Police. It's, you know, Food Wrapper. <laughs> it was so much fun to pitch these people because these original names that they would be given, you know, kind of were very charming and it got them excited about the show as well. So was it difficult to put together a story plot when basically it it really is supposed to be about the talent that's in the show, but you can't guarantee that until you have them sign on the dotted line. So was that a difficult process? Because I know, Valerie, you were reaching out to the talent during that time. Yeah, the um, we did go through quite a few artists that didn't make it in, but uh, I think the, the key was... <laughs> Well, we pitched them. For example, Tina Turner. We wanted to be Tina Tuna. Uh, and so her her song was going to be What's Meat Got to Do With It. So I took her. And I'm trying to remember, Jim, did you come with to that dinner? No, that, no, no. I okay. wasn't along. Valerie ran. Now, that was, a, that was a social thing, Valerie. You ran into her, didn't you, at a party? Oh, no. Oh, no I, yeah, you're right. I did. I think I had a connection. Huh. And I said, look. Let's. I took her to Spago, or yeah, I was at a Spago dinner with her. I, I actually don't remember how I got there with her. I thought it was yeah. a Disney thing, but I was sitting next to her all night at dinner at Spago, had this wonderful evening, and then I pitched it, and she listened, and then at the end of the conversation, she said, I really like you, and I, I like I like the show idea. I like the thing. I want to say yes. She goes, but it's a little too corny for me. <laughs> I thought, food, that's related. It's too corny. But can we come up with a song for that? Anyway, I did. I pitched her what's meat got to do with it. And uh, she had sparkle in her eyes, but not enough. But we had interesting meetings. We brought in, um, we brought in. Um, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, I think they came into WDI. I remember sitting at a meeting with them. Yeah, I think some some of the some of the people got a little greedy, right? Where, where the managers got involved, it, it was sometimes difficult to get through the manager to the talent. I know that we tried really hard to get Elvis Parsley, but his estate was um, just too difficult to deal with. And then when we got Tone Loke to come in. Uh, you liked him so much, right? That he became the host of the show. He became the host of the show, yeah. We did. I don't think we'd planned for that, but you know, some of the artists just were very accessible, and even Sting. I think that he re-recorded for us. At least we talked about it. Him doing every cake you bake instead of every breath you take. Every bite you take. Every bite you take. But every bite you take. They, they, uh, the as I recall, the police sailed through pretty. Pretty agreeably, but I don't think he ever did the recording. He, oh, he certainly, certainly didn't from the beginning. No, Joe Hamilton. Uh, ah, can't think of his name now. Harnell uh, did the Sting voice. 
the sound alike. Okay, he was really yes, good. Yeah. yeah. George, that was, uh, George that brought was, in an unbelievable, We the sound alikes were unbelievable on that show. Yeah. I, and I don't know where, well, I do, I know George has just done everything with these people. But, you know, we, we would get these people marched in and we'd listen to it and we'd go, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. This is just, you know, they were the, they were the most amazing voices. And we would do that to demonstrate our little dog and pony show was to do a song, record it, first class, uh, you know, the instrumentation, everything, and a sound alike, and then play that for the artist and say, would you agree to, to be part of this? And so we were doing a bunch of those songs to try and impress people. When you say Elvis, the Elvis Presley estate and uh, Tina Turner and all those people, all of those had songs. We did all those songs. Because we had them ready to, you know, to play for them or to send to them and say, this right. is what we want to do. So it was, a, it was a big operation for a long time to try and get people to sign on to it. Right. And, and, and those who did, right, had a great, a, a great understanding and a great attitude about the whole thing. Uh, my understanding about Sting is that he listened to his sound alike and he was ready to do it and then said, it sounds as good as anything I would do. And said, you know, go ahead and go, right. go with sound alike. I think but, that's right. Peter Gabriel, yep. I remember, did exactly the same thing. We had a sound alike for Peter Gabriel that was amazing. Yeah. And Peter was ready to do it. And at the end said, yeah, you know what? It's fine. The other yeah. guy like that, I remember Neil Sadaka. Neil Sadaka came in to do it. Came, Neil Sadaka agreed to do it and came in to do Vegetables Are Good For You instead of Breaking Up Is Hard To Do. And um, his wife uh, was his agent at that time. And his, and his wife said, you know, you better plan a long session because Neil does all the parts. You know, Neil did, George, you know, what, eight different voices in that. You know, he did all the harmonies and he did it himself. And she said, uh, you know, you better be ready because Neil, Neil is a perfectionist and he'll want to do all the harmonies. And we had the voice talent in and we had done the demo and we brought Neil Sadaka in, and I think he did. I think he did two parts, and he said, "You know what? You, your voice talent is fantastic. Just use that for the for the harmonies." So um, once again, he did the principal part, and then left left the rest for us. So, right, right. he had so much fun. I remember it, he was. Uh, that was the fun part with these artists, even wanting to outdo themselves. Yep. You know, from and, and honoring their original song, they were just thrilled. Like uh, right. even. I remember little Richard coming in and going, man, I can't sing that high. <laughs> <laughs> he also, yeah. I just was thinking of this because he just died a few weeks ago. He, he kept muffing the lyrics because, of course, he had sang Tutti Frutti with his own lyrics for, what, 50 years? And, of really? course, we handed him a sheet with new lyrics on it. That's so he had a hard time singing it because, he, of course, he was on autopilot. He'd been doing it you know, every night for 50 years. Um, but he was fantastic. Really amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my, my kids loved him. So since food rocks was the, the last piece of this, uh, the renewal of the land pavilion, we were really done with all construction. We were just, the show was installed and we were just programming away. And it was the time where, where, you know, my kids came in while dad was programming the show and my daughter was two right? and, and she knew him as, as they called him pineapple guy. Um, and they right. sat in and watched this program. And, uh, you know, my daughter now is a producer uh, at Imagineering on the Tokyo portfolio. And it's because she's grown up, uh, 
you know, in this world. But they had the greatest time watching watching uh, that that show come together. And what's so what's so great about talking about all the acts that didn't get in the show is that is the quintessential imagineering process, right? You start in blue sky with pie in the sky ideas for a crazy show. And then as you work on that over the years, right, you, you, budgets and schedules and and all the things uh, change the way a show finally gets delivered. But at the end of the day, what you have is an amazing, cohesive show that seems to make perfect sense, right? And as we talk about all the artists that we pitched and weren't there, at the end of the day, the cast that was in that theater was the cast that needed to be in that theater. And those songs were powerful. Yeah, yeah adults loved them. Yeah. They all knew yeah. the oldies but goodies. And Cher was still a big talent at the time. And does anybody remember Cher uh, recorded it, Bite, but didn't she send us the tracks or did she actually come in? She, my memory is that she didn't, Gloria she didn't did it. actually record it. She didn't. Because I have a signed, I have a signed autograph of her sitting on a motorcycle picture from that. But then I and I can't tell when I listen to the recording if she really did it or not. I thought she recorded something and sent it in, but I think you're right. You guys know, uh, George. I think we had a fantastic sound like for her, didn't we? That was Gloria Bellis. Oh, okay. Yeah, you right. can't tell the difference. So all the people in the audience, all the adults, really thought it was all the original voices, and then the kids got the fun lyrics. So it was I, really I amazing. heard I heard a fantastic story from our attorneys about Cher. The deal, and, and we weren't none of us. I mean, Valerie, Valerie was a little bit because Valerie, you know, did, was the supervising all the stuff. But none of us were actually involved in making the deals because you know that's that's the law, lawyers department. And what they used to do is they would promise them other things. They would say, well, you know, you, we'll give you passes to the park and we'll give you some merchandise certificates and we'll do this and we'll do that. And the story was that Cher uh, held out for everything. Cher, when, when Cher was offered four annual passes to the park for a year, she said, make them for the length of the attraction and don't make them four, make them 10. And I, I want this and I want that. And she just held their feet to the fire for every little thing she could get. And at the very end, she said, okay, and I want you, I'm going to donate all that to a children's charity. So, so um, why didn't, why didn't she record it then? Um, it's very hard to say, you know, a lot of people were busy at the yeah, time. Scheduling issues sometimes. They had scheduling issues. And of course they would have had to come through or, or do it remotely. And then I, I just have to say, you know, credit to George and, he, you know, you can hear these when I say sound alike and he instantly gives us the name of the person who did it. You know, these the, the recordings were really fantastic. And there were a number of these people like Neil Sadaka and Peter Gabriel who were ready to do it all and then listen to the recording and said, you know what, they're doing it as well as I would do it. Just use it. And we didn't re-record every single thing. Right. I'm, I'm not I'm talking about the instrumentals. We got original tracks. That's right. Times, right. Yeah. The the track of Bohemian Rhapsody that you hear in Bohemian Food Rhapsody. Rhapsody is the original Bohemian Rhapsody. There was a day when those tapes arrived at WDI and they were the original tracks. Right. And I still get a chill when I think about it. Uh, they they put them on the player and we got to hear all that we got to listen to all the different tracks and all the different takes of Bohemian Rhapsody. So yeah, they, they, some of them, they actually were able to use authentic tracks. 
What about the actual uh, waiting section? Did you guys help design that in preparation for people to go into the theater? Because I just remember it being so much fun. It was like a, you know, a food nutrition playground and the boxes that you would open and they had different scents in them. And you would, you know, little food facts on the wall and on these little, you know, on these little machines and things. It was so much fun. So did you guys play a part in creating that too? Yeah, that that was all, all Imagineering's work. We we re envisioned the holding area and the entranceway and did all that, all those great food uh, fun facts and the scent boxes and that was all part of the scope for the for reimagining uh, Kitchen Cabaret into Food Rocks. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I was involved a little bit with the with the pre show area, uh, but I wasn't primarily the writer of that. Um, you know, credit really goes to. Uh, to Roly Crumb for putting all that together so efficiently. And uh, someone we haven't mentioned, Rennie Rao. Rennie Rao was the stylist for that. And she's an artist uh, at Imagineering and she has a very distinctive, incredible cartoon style. And Roly made her the stylist for that whole area, which meant the characters, the pre-show area, the sets, everything. And uh, that's how he had done things originally when he was involved in projects like uh, Small World, is that it was done with a stylist so that everything had a unified look. And that was part of that pre-show area, is that Rennie was deeply involved in that pre-show, all the elements of that pre-show area, as well as the show itself. So that re- really, the credit goes to her for the distinctive look of all of that. Did you guys keep any mementos from the attraction, or is there anything that you remember that you still have from that time period? Yeah, um, I, I still have uh, the, the original uh, set of the original gobos for all the fixtures, and of course, videotapes of us uh, programming it and and the first few versions of the show. None of that, of course, has been transferred off of off of videotape. But uh, yeah, and uh, and and those moving lights are still uh, are still in our inventory. Um, when when Food Rocks closed. We transferred all those lights to the uh, Tiki Room because uh, the Tiki Room at Magic Kingdom also had those very same fixtures. So those became spares uh, for for that. And then when we reimagined Tiki Room, uh, those fixtures all came back to Imagining in Glendale. So we have a whole series of... uh, of moving lights that are painted like like tiki like tiki pieces, and then some that are the standard flat black. So th- those fixtures are still are still lovingly hanging around Imagineering today. All I have are old documents that have like the status of the legal situation. So that would be boring. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I did I did uh, I did find our programming tapes for Food Rock. So I have transferred from uh, from the cassette programming tapes. Uh, and have di- digital copies of of the, that or, all that original music that we use to program too. So it is nice to have your own private soundtrack to to Food Rocks. Yeah, I have a, a dat of the show. I also have a picture of me and the Pointer Sisters. <laughs> <laughs> George, I want to see that. You got to send it. <laughs> okay. There was a there was a little tragedy in the middle of the show. Oh no! Um, do you guys remember Ken Lisi? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Ken, Ken, Lisi, Ken Lisi ran the recording studio at Walt Disney Imagineering, and he was killed during the time that the show was being put together. It was a, it was a, it was a horrible family tragedy. And um, the, the original version of the show, you talked about you know, the original Cher and, and her hair being redone. The original version of the show, the narrator 
says, hello, Orlando, which was our little parody of a rock concert. And that was, that was from the original Rough Track, and Ken Lisi did that. Ken had a great radio announcer voice. And so, of course, as, as people do, when, uh, when a track is put together like that, they, they jump in and do the lines that we don't have ready for the talent. And so Ken did Hello Orlando and did the, the opening of Food Rocks and announced the show and et cetera. And um, when, we, when the whole show was finished, we were all unbelievably saddened by what happened to Ken as we were doing the show. When the whole show was finished, we played it for an executive, I won't say who. And uh, the executive's note was, eh, it doesn't make sense to say Orlando, we should say, we should say Walt Disney World. Just re-record that. And uh, I went to my boss, Barry Braverman, and, and Roly Crump, of course, and I said, I'm not going to change that because that's Ken. And I, I want Ken to introduce the show. And so we didn't change it. So for about a year, that show said, hello, Orlando, which was the, the parody of, of every rock concert, you know, that starts by naming the city. And uh, about a year into it, I remember being told, yeah, they changed it. They, you know, when they went back and redid some mixes, they went back and re-recorded it and said, hello, Walt Disney World. So you'll hear, I think most of them online say, hello, Walt Disney World. Welcome to the, the, the concert for good nutrition. But the original one was Ken doing it. And he said, hello, Orlando. He, ran the, he ran the recording studio at Imagineering. Right. So he, he had his fingers in, in everything that came through there with sound. Uh, George, you must have worked with him a jillion times. Right. Well, like I say, he, Ken was a dear buddy of mine, and uh, yeah, uh, he was in charge of everything. <laughs> yeah, uh, he and uh, Glenn Barker. Right. I think yeah, Glenn he worked really on like Body Wars. I worked with him really closely on Body Wars when that opened, and then he worked on Superstar Television, just as you know, helping us doing tracks to, to play in the background for that live show um but all the original record anyway he worked on everything yeah, he actually used to do theater you know uh, uh you know neighborhood theater stuff right so which he loved to do you know which was so unlike ken if you knew ken all of a sudden be a character you know yeah his his legacy lives on through a couple of the projects. It sounds like some of them are still around, which is great to hear. I'm going to have to find, um, if I can find any video footage of the original audio track of that opening, I'd love to hear it um, myself because you, the only one I knew was the one that they had uh, dubbed over later on. When you're talking about the design for this project, um, how long did it take to kind of craft um, a visual of each character to make it seem similar to their counterpart, but then also, you know, have like it's a, it, it be its own creation too? Well, uh, I mean, that really was the work of, of Rennie and, uh, uh, and Rolly. Uh, uh, I mean, Rolly left that to Rennie to style, but but I remember. See, when when you mentioned the pineapple and Little Richard, what I remember was that was when when Little Richard agreed to do it. You know, then then the meeting started about what this character would be, and of course the whole thing about a pineapple. He was singing about fruit, tutti fruity, but the whole thing about a pineapple was that it matched his kind of bouffant hair. You know, the the spikes of the pineapple. So all of those things were all tied up as to what you were looking for, what the combination was. 
Uh, Cher was a very slinky fish, kind of, uh, uh, you know, in a net. And of course, was that all matched her image of uh, at the time. And of course, you know, that all fit perfectly. So once the recording artist had agreed to do the show, then they tried to match that in terms of a visual and in terms of a character. Like you put the mustache on little Richard, too, and his. That's right. Yeah. When he came into the studio, he handed it out Bibles to everybody. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. And, and speaking of speaking of little Richard, he had passed away this year, and we just recently lost Bonnie Pointer, one of the Pointer sisters. Yeah. So, yeah. and and you guys had great experiences working with them. It sounds like I still have an original little little cassette that I had of I think the original that we put together for pitching. The, the lyrics and the music are so much fun with with this entire show. Do either of you have a favorite specific track from the show that you just love? Not, not really. Oh, I do think the Beach Boys was a great vocal. Yeah, you know the thing is, you fall in love with every piece of the show, right? Yeah. You, you know, you you start out, you know, with with your you know your favorite songs early on, but then. When you're in this in the space, you know, 16 hours a day, seven days a week playing this stuff, you really just really, truly fall in love with all of it. I mean, you know, the, the, opening, the opening, you know, the the uh, uh, Peter Gabriel, you know, that, cla- you know, as soon as you hear the first three or four notes of all those classic songs, it just brings it all back. Right. And so really, at the end of the day, uh, as, as a team member, you you love everybody who's in the show. We had a guy named Aaron Richards who I can't. He was a. I'm not quite sure what his title was, but he, you know, I've worked with Aaron a lot, and he was always like the guy that hires the composer that you know then stays in the booth and everything. Anyway, when when we were talking about staying, he wanted to make sure that the drum was the right sound. So we brought in Greg Bassinet, who is one of the great studio drummers in town. And we must have worked on that drum set for two hours, three hours, miking it, making sure the snare sounded just like, you know, Sting snare and everything. And I kept, I, I kind of was laughing at it, but, and then we ended up using a drum machine on that track. <laughs> We ended up using the the re- recording we had made and triggering a drum machine. For wow, you recreated! I thought that was original. When I when I would listen to it, I always thought we got tracks to that. So you did no, all that was, new tracks. Wow, we, we did that track, and and uh, like I say, we you know Aaron was so concerned about the snare sound, mm-hmm. and uh, anyway, we ended up using a drum machine after three hours in a studio playing it. <laughs> I, think, I think part of the fun of that show was that you know it would have been it would have been easy and fun to do you know 50s and 60s rock to do little richard and and to, you know kind of stop at the beach boys yeah uh, but but you know that show opened with well with tone walk and it opened with uh the police and peter gabriel and at that time you know those were the people touring in the biggest rock shows right right so it was it really was a range of everything. You know, you had you had really fun classics, 
that we did parodies of, but you were also parodying songs that you were hearing on the radio right at that time. Right. So it, it really it really was a fantastic mixture, and I think that's what appealed to everybody. Bob, Jim, you ought to take a lot of credit for that because that was a you wrote a great show, man. Well, it was it was a lot of fun to do, and it was constantly a challenge. Yeah. And, uh, hey. Who's in? Who's out? Who's in? Who's out? Yes. <laughs> Sometimes I feel bad because I, I, there's such a love for Kitchen Cabaret, which I totally understand. The music's gorgeous and wonderful. And again, George worked on it. And I think a lot of people don't realize George worked on this project too. And I don't feel like Food Rocks usually gets the love it, it deserves, in my opinion. Um, you know, and so I, I really do appreciate you guys being on the show today to talk about it and, and all of these stories because there really is no information. I just really appreciate all of you being on the show and creating this this particular production of Food Rocks because it, um, it it played such a wonderful part to my childhood. And I think a lot of people forget that some kids were introduced to these classic songs because of this show. And just know that it has a special place in a lot of people's hearts. <laughs> Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I wrote junk. I composed that. Jim, did you write the lyrics to that? I did. We, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> we had, that's right. We had, we, I, I actually think we were, I think that was the reason that uh, Paul Stanley, I think that the Kiss, yeah, we, we, were try, kiss. we were trying to get yeah. Kiss to be the bad guys. Right. And I think that was what, the offer was on the table was the kiss would be the bad guys. And I think that fell apart early on because I remember, I remember coming to the, some meeting with George and Rowley and, and we said, no, let's just do our own song for that. By now we've done all the classic songs. Let's write exactly what we want for that song. Yeah. Yeah. And so I did lyrics, uh, which I was completely unqualified to be doing at that point, um, you know, writing original lyrics. And I got them to George, and George very, very politely and professionally said, I'm having trouble scanning these, <laughs> which, is a, which, which is a code word. Uh, that's what, we, what musicians say, saying, you wrote something that I can't actually set notes to exactly right. <laughs> and, of course, George had already suggested the, the slight fix. You know, if you change this word to this, I think it'll scan better. And I went, you betcha. Because he had done everything in the world by then. And so George did the lyric. That was a completely original song uh, with new lyrics, and, and George did the music for it. And Junk was, was the only real complete song uh, that wasn't inspired by anything else in that show. Is there anything each of you would like to say to the fans of the show before we close out? Um, I, I'm, just, I, I'm excited that, that the fan base is still active and that the show still has an important place in people's hearts. Um, I've got a, a programmer who works for me at Imagineering who is the, is the programmer who programmed um, all of the world of color at DCA, lights, fountains, the whole bit. And uh, he, we were talking about I was going to be on, on your show. He's like, oh, Food Rocks. I sat in that show as a child and couldn't believe that I was I was in a rock concert in a Disney theme park. And then he grows up to be uh, arguably one of the best lighting programmers that is working today. So, so, so to see the impact that it's had on, on my peers and, and uh, it's just spectacular. I would say, you know, we all grew up, we all grew up, you know, lionizing the classic Disney 
you know, the classic Disney attractions. Um, and they all seem so unbelievably magical and they all seem so, you know, in escape, you know, you couldn't approach them because they were so fantastic and so magical. And what you realize working there and doing something like Food Rocks is, oh, this is the formula. They get really, really talented people and they kind of let them do it. And sometimes that used to happen there and sometimes it didn't effectively. But I would say that was the lesson I learned from Food Rocks. You know, we, we you know, Roly put together an unbelievable group and then kind of said, you guys, you guys do it. And yeah. uh, it was that was so inspiring. And of course, that's the story you hear over and over and over again with all those attractions. That's actually how that happened. Yeah. yeah. And, and Roly, I say, was was fantastic. As you say, he he put a team together and and let you run with it. Um, and if he disagreed with you, he would. And if you had enough passion, he would still let you run with it. But but tell you that uh, he was going to come after you if it didn't work out like you promised it would. Right. And that, <laughs> and that was a great relationship. Right. And for Roly, who, yeah. who did the first pavilion. Right. So he was back. Um, finishing things he never got to finish on opening day. So for him, it, this whole the whole renewal of the land pavilion was just a crazy act of love, and uh, it was great to hear him and hear his stories of the about creating the uh, tr the first attraction in the pavilion in the first place. So he was he was as fantastic as the rumors had him to be. He he was nothing but a pleasure, and I I feel blessed to be able to have worked with him uh, on on this show. Yep, same here. Yep. And that, that that was my first time working with that group with Jim and with Rolly and Barry Braverman. And it's just a tribute to like the quality of the show where you're not so dependent on one specific character, right? You try to get these these titles in and if one didn't work, boom, you moved on and it even got better. Because that happened a lot on superstar television as well. We had to go through and get rights to all these TV shows from the past, and um, I, I was a producer on that one. And and it never got. Um, you, you always rose above, right? And that's the tribute. That's a tribute to a, just a good quality written show. I really appreciate you guys being a part of this. This has been so much fun. And um, uh, here's to another 20 years of Food Rocks and fans and choose before you chew. <laughs> Thanks, Tammy. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Tammy. We're waiting in the kitchen. Waiting in the kitchen for you. Keep it low.